One thing I wanted to do, which I'm conscious of, is not to glamorize uh, the war and just to drag it back to reality. I mean, what's happened to us all, really, is our lives have been turned upside down. Mm. I mean, that hasn't happened since 19, the 1940s. There's never been something like that hasn't occurred and it's a reminder that forces are beyond us and beyond our routine of our lives to which we're accustomed something can come along and it happened in 1914 happened in 1939 uh, and it's happened in 2020 there are a couple of films possibly being made of my books such is the voracious appetite of television and the movies these days. I think everything will be made eventually. Everybody's books will be turned into something. You know, it's a cliche to say, but I think a really, really good uh, box set has replaced the kind of Victorian novel as the thing that, you know, you read, you, you get, helps you get through the winter. Welcome to Bestsellers. I'm Natalie Jameson. And this is Phil Williams. And on today's episode, somebody that I personally have wanted to do for a while and never interviewed in any capacity whatsoever. Oh, what really? about you? Yeah. Well, that's interesting because you often have spent time with some of these authors. Yeah. yeah no, I haven't. Um, I haven't interviewed Robert Harris before either. He was our guest today. Mm. So uh, and it's really good, by the way, really enlightening on how he does it. He's, he was very honest with us about his process. And it's different to any writer I think I've interviewed also. Yeah, me too. Um yeah, I mean, you'll you'll hear it shortly, but he talks about how he writes, say, maybe 4,000 words and then sends that to his editor, gets feedback and then writes more. And that's how he's pretty much always done it to give him the impetus and and the knowledge that it's going in the right direction. And I think I really want that. <laughs> For you, you mean? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I'm sure you could do that. Have you spoken to your publisher about that? Yeah, uh, to my agent. I, I, I think I will do after this conversation, actually. Because, again, I think most authors are like, don't want to hand it over until they've completed a full draft that they're more or less happy with. Um, I think most people sort of say a first draft is never brilliant, but the, the bones of it are there. Um, whereas I kind of, I think because of, you know, we're all journalists, Robert Harris included, um, I sort of edit a lot as I go along. So I think I quite need a bit of that feedback um, because I'm doing quite a lot of work. I'm not just getting things out. I'm sort of trying to craft stuff a mm. bit more carefully and then edit it and re-edit it quite a lot before I then go on to the next thing. So, um, yeah, I think I will suggest it. Yeah, do. Because almost all writers I've interviewed have said that you've got to just get to the end of your story first. I mean so perhaps yeah. that crafting that you're trying to do could be stopping you from progressing although you have finished your book so that's yeah. a slightly moot point yeah it is but um I also I also want my agent to impose a deadline on me which you'll yeah. hear more about that in a second we are that we should explain this to you as a journalist I mean Natalie's been doing it over 20 years so have I Robert Harris longer there is something about the trade because you're drilled in deadlines and I'm talking about hourly deadlines yeah that when you don't have those you just relax, don't you? Because the pressure's not there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's not laziness. It's not laziness. It's it's more complicated than that. It's almost like the alarm doesn't go off in your head, isn't it? Yeah, and it's not as if you're... In some respects, it feels like you're wasting time before that deadline fully engages. But you're spending 
uh, time on, you know, researching stories or, you know, when we were working in radio, you'll sort of be, you'd be doing interviews, you'd be listening back, you'd be doing edits, but then the actual kind of pulling it all together. So I guess the equivalent of writing the novel, once you've mm. done all the, the kind of nuts and bolts that you need to get there to sort of have your, your parts, if you like, before you, you complete the, the thing um, until somebody says, yeah, okay, we need that now. <laughs> I need that to like kick in to then be like, okay, I'm going to do it. Yeah. Do you know what, just before we leave this alone, right, were you the kind of kid that left your homework to the last minute? Yeah, I was about exactly to say that, yeah, always at school, you know, I was classic Sunday night, staying up super late, um, kind of procrastinating through the weekend. I think I can kind of see both things because I understand the logic in as soon as you've got it, get it done, and then you can relax and enjoy that time, but I'm stubborn as hell. So the other part of me is like, yeah, but I don't have to do that just yet, so I'm not going to do it. Um, I think it's really difficult. How about you? I've never really noticed your stubbornness. Have you? Oh, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Nearly. Nearly. Come on. <laughs> no, I'm, I, uh, yeah, I'm slightly similar to you, but not as intelligent as you. And so what I did at university um, with my best mate, um, who's a big fan of this pod, hi, Mike, is that um, I'm largely driven by him, actually. If an assignment had to be in, say, on the 7th, we'd set our own false deadline of a week before. Wow. And um, that just really helped because then what it means, if you've got any issues printing or if you've got any issues um, with editing or anything like that, you've built yourself a cushion. And also you don't have that. Sometimes there was a a proliferation of deadlines and Mm. quite often, you know, on the night before a big assignment was due in, we'd be the only two in the bar because we were done. And we were done printed band. And so that, and I, I do that now. So with books, for example, managing book workloads for the Times show and for bestsellers, I try and set myself false deadlines so I can try and get ahead because otherwise I've normally got three books running concurrently at any mm. one week. Wow. I don't I'm always impressed. succeed in that. Yeah. That's just that it's more of an ambition rather than a, a mantra. Nice. Yeah, yeah, I don't do that. But it's fair enough. But like I said, you're probably more intelligent and so your brain can process more quickly. <laughs> I don't know. If, I don't know if that's the case or just more stubborn because I'd be like, yeah, well, I know that's not the proper deadline because like I said it a week early, so I can still oh, kind of see. like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Mm. Uh, but you're only cheating yourself, Miss Davis. I know. <laughs> uh, so let's get to the country where we didn't think. Now, by the way, if you're a regular listener to this podcast, and I hope you are, you know we've rattled through some countries where we didn't think we'd get any listeners, and we've got one or two, and so we, we celebrate those countries. And mostly just a bit of me messing about, to be honest with you. But um, genuinely now, we're running out of countries where we've only got one listener, which is great. So, <laughs> so I don't know whether it's this feature has worked or whether we're just getting more word amount. Anyway, so thanks for spreading the word. Yeah, thanks. So um, the option today, we only had one country we could tell you about, and that was Lesotho. Now, for five key facts on Lesotho, Natalie Jameson. <laughs> I don't know if I've got five key facts <laughs> on it. Um, I do know that it's, uh, it is only, again, thanks to a certain search on the internet. Um, although I did know a little bit about Lesotho before, actually. Uh, it's in within Southern Africa, but it is one of only three independent states that are surrounded completely by another country alongside Vatican City and San Marino. Oh, that's a good fact. I'll take that. Yeah. Wasn't hard to find. Don't give me any (laughs) credit for it whatsoever. Um, But hello, if you are listening in Lesotho. Yeah. Hi. And thank you for being our one. Spread Spread the word for us. Yeah. So next time that we do one of these, I want to be able to click on our digits and see that we've then got 10 in Lesotho. That's what, slow <laughs> okay. growth, slow growth. Uh, so to Robert Harris then, really good in, uh, episode this. If you are in any way interested in wanting to write for yourself, he's very generous about how he does that, and that might chime with you. And also why he loves setting his stories 
amongst um, parts of 20th century history uh, rather than completely making up stories. They all have a setting in reality. So here's Natalie Jameson to introduce him properly. There is no denying that Robert Harris is a bestseller. He's written 13 best-selling novels. Many will be familiar to you, I'm sure. Things like Enigma or Pompeii and Fatherland are just a few that stand out. Uh, his latest novel, V2, is another chart success already. And he wrote most of it in lockdown earlier in 2020. So Robert, thank you so much for being with us on Bestsellers. Oh, pleasure. Nice to join you. Um, can we just start with how you wrote this book then? Because the discipline you had to achieve that. Um, for full disclosure, I'm a fledgling writer and this pandemic year has not been good at all for my own personal creativity or ability, I think, to focus on, on writing in that way. But I find it really cheering when I can see that others are able to, to see their way through all of this and produce work like your book. So how did you do it? Uh, it's very nice of you to say that you're, <laughs> you you like to see other writers working. I hate to see other writers working. It drives <laughs> me mad. Um, I think, um, you know, I have this strange, I used to be a journalist and I have this strange fondness for deadlines, the adrenaline of a deadline. Unless I have that, I can't really get anything done. And, uh, you know, always when I was a journalist, if I found that I had to write a column, say, for a newspaper. The ones that I'd researched carefully were always dead and the ones where I just had to make it up like a stand-up comedian on the spot, they worked. You know, you saw something in that with that pressure. So anyway, I've always tried to start my books in January and finish them in June and then they normally come out in September, which is a crazy schedule. But that's what I was doing this year with the V2 and uh, I'd written about a quarter of it. Uh, and then this faint uh, drumbeat of alarm that I could distantly hear behind my desk. Suddenly, uh, we were overwhelmed. It was like an avalanche and, uh, you know, lockdown. And then I really think, like, like most people, like yourself by the sound of it, it became very hard to work. It, first of all, what you were doing seemed trivial. You know, mm -hmm. who needs it? Uh, secondly, I think for writing, you need uh, recreation. You need to see other people get out and, um, you know, a lot of writing is done in the subconscious and one mm -hmm. didn't sleep very well. There were lots of dreams and it was very, very hard. So for about three weeks, I completely stalled and I thought, well, I won't probably finish this book this year at least. But then my publisher said, oh, we'd still want to do it. So I thought, oh, well, damn it. I'll try and come out of this strange imprisonment with something to show for it at least. Yeah. So I really just sat down and wrote... Um, seven days a week. I couldn't do much more than four hours a day, actually, but I tried to do 800 words a day. And uh, gradually uh, it, it started to come to work. And in fact, it became rather addictive. It was a bit of a refuge from, from the world around, actually. Still, I would have thought there's still a fair degree of research involved in this book and in all of your books. No, I wouldn't want people to hear your first anecdote and think that you don't do that because you, you must do, surely. Oh yeah, no, no, of course. that. Um, presupposes, starting January, presupposes quite a lot of research and thinking about how I might tell the story. Um, I normally try to make a kind of plan so I know where I'm going, which you then have to be willing to throw away because characters that you think in November will do something and act in a certain way, when you get to it in March, you find that, no, that's just illogical. They wouldn't do that. And you have to, that can completely turn a book upside down. So you have to be prepared to change. But yeah, no, I do. 
Uh, it depends whether I know the subject a bit. So for something like Munich, I was about six months research and uh, Conclave was about six months because it was a very limited kind of geographical area and time frame. Others take longer. Um, this was the idea for this book had first come to me about four years ago. So this is sort of, sort of you know, sat at the back of my mind for a while. Can I just ask you about your about deadlines? Um, do they have to be imposed by other people? Both Phil and I are journalists as well. And I think from what you were saying there as well about the research, often you, you've kind of done a lot of the work anyway, but it's until that deadline's looming that the kind of physical getting it down on, you know, into your laptop or however you do it, you kind of need that drive. But does it work if you set those deadlines or do you always need somebody else to impose that on you? Oh, I think you need someone else, to be honest. I mean, if it was just me, I'd treat myself with contempt. <laughs> <laughs> so um, uh, I find that if I tell my publishers, okay, I think I can do this, and then the whole thing starts in motion, you know, of designs and things. And so I feel, my, I feel like there's a team slightly depending on me, which is a good feeling in a way. You know, writing, I wrote about this a bit in the ghostwriter novel that I did, you know, this writing is something that is never, you never run out of excuses to put it off. Um, and there's always some reason to not do it. It's incredibly hard to self-start writing, I think. So mm. you need anything, any external stimulus you can get. Desperation is quite a good one, actually, or self <laughs> Self-loathing is another. Yeah, I'm really, I'm really. I simply one. can't face myself in the mirror if I haven't done 500 words today. Uh, that sort of, yeah, you need something like that. Because you know it's what not I'm wondering? Natural state, is it, to sit down mm. for half a day and invent things? But if you rely on on deadlines being imposed upon you, have you not reached a stage in your career where people might be a bit afraid to impose those deadlines on you? Do you know what I mean by that? You're a very well-established, big-selling writer. Our publisher's still in the habit of saying, Robert, we need it Friday or you're in trouble. Well, <laughs> they wouldn't actually put it like that. It's true. It's, it's more... And, and I do think, um, you know, the world won't end if I didn't just deliver a book. And I'd just say to them, you know, I'm really sorry, it's just not going to work. And I, I think they'd just accept that. But for my own professional pride and just for uh, the sense of the rhythm of working life, I find that helps me to, to, to settle to it. And not only that, more importantly, perhaps, is the is adrenaline, I think, what is it? It's, it's some, it makes you speed up your reaction. So the world seems to slow down slightly. Adrenaline is great for making you see things and connections you wouldn't otherwise do. And if you write thrillers in particular, I think it adds to the ten, you know, the tension and the, you know, the excitement. And uh, I think readers both want to feel they're in the being guided by a writer who knows what they're doing. They, you know, there's a point to everything they're being told. And yet, at the same time, there's a wonderful freshness if you are sort of making it up as you go along. You know, there's a kind of liveness on the page you mm. can detect. So, I think for me, uh, after nearly thirty years, writing has been trying to find that golden path between you know, a properly structured story, which if you don't have, it's like trying to embark on telling a joke without knowing a punchline, you know, you'd ramble around <laughs> like one of those Ronnie Corbett monologues. <laughs> or 
you uh, plus you need also the ability to just think, oh my God, that's interesting, and follow a completely different line. And that makes it more interesting each day to sit down and write. And why was this in the back of your mind for four years, like you just said? Why, why did it take four years to come onto the page? Well, I read in September 2016, just as I was about to start work on... Um, just was I about to start work? Just as um, Conclave came out, uh, an, a, an obituary of a woman called Eileen Younghusband in the Times. And I love reading the obituaries in the Times because uh, they're all they're, these mini biographies, these stories and anecdotes, often of people in the war. You know, a lost, almost vanished generation. And Eileen Younghusband had been a wife, a women's air force officer. And she had been a group, one of a group of eight women who was sent to uh, newly liberated Belgium to, as part of the effort to try and stop the V2s. And she had, she'd worked in an accountancy firm before the war. And she had some head for numbers. She was only young, about 23, 24. And uh, what these women had to do, they were stationed 70 miles south from the Dutch coast where the V2s were being fired at London. And they had to calculate the curve of the rocket. They, they knew it landed in London five minutes after launch, and they, they had high-looking radars which could briefly see the brief trajectory of the rocket before it went out of range. And if you put those two figures together, you could calculate back the origin of the curve because the V2 was ballistic, so it, it was like a stone flung from a catapult. It followed a predetermined course. Mm. So that was what she was had to do, and she was told that if they could make this calculation in six minutes, the RAF could get a Spitfire over the launch site and bomb it before the Germans could get away. So uh, I just thought that sounds like the most fantastic character and place mm. to set a story, and that was how it started with her, really, and the thought of a woman doing that kind of job in quite a hazardous sort of a place. Yeah, uh, we'll kind of hear a bit of your story shortly but there are two parallel threads that kind of run out that run through your book so you've got the story of a female officer on the british side and then on the nazi german side you have a scientist uh, who is creating these rockets um but just on seeing as you were talking about uh the sort of woman who inspired this story as a female reader i i shouldn't say i'm surprised but i'm pleasantly surprised maybe about how well you write for women i think and there's a thread that runs through this story, I think, about how often women are underestimated and, you know, the people that you're writing about in these circumstances, they generally seem a lot more capable than some of the men. It's just that societal circumstances mean that they are limited in, in some respects. Is that something you were keen to draw out of this story too? Yes, I was. I mean, I'm, I've, I write about power and politics and these sorts of things and quite often that means that you know women weren't in the past playing those sorts of roles so mm. you know you can have big figures behind the scenes in ancient Rome or wherever but they're not actually the principal actors um, and I most of my novels are about people who are on the periphery of great events uh, they may be sl slightly overlooked in a corner of the room they are watchful um, slightly detached and of course, this is very much a woman's role, uh, especially in the war, um, to be incredibly valuable, but at the same time, rather not listened to. So the, the mm -hmm. sort of role, I was one I was immediately in sympathy with. 
And I did want to write about a woman and try and do it honestly. I mean, I've got two daughters, I'm married, I have a sister, I've grown, almost all the people in my professional life, agents, publishers, and so on, are women. So I spend a lot of my time. So it's not like, you know, I, it's a weird species, I don't understand. <laughs> I, and I found that as a, as, a, as a psychological model and as a place from which to view a story, a woman's perspective is very interesting. So I simply tried to write it just honestly as I could, based on what I'd seen over 60 years or so of being around women. Um, and um, I did was conscious that those chapters with her, they, have a, they do have a different flavor. Mm. Funnier, actually. I mean, you know, the, those women all together, they are quite, there's one in particular, Barbara, who I yeah, really- Yeah, she's great. Got, got very fond of, yeah. <laughs> Do you ask the women in your life to ever verify any of your dialogue or anything? Do you, do you refer it on? Well, my wife reads my books um, and, and I had, I've had a lot of woman editor, uh, Jocasta Hamilton, uh, who's done my last six novels and she's very good. So she would read the book. I wrote it almost like a Victorian part work. You know, I'd send in four or 5,000 words a week and she would read it that day and we talk about it and then I go on and write the rest so she kept an eye on it and uh, yeah she gave me some confidence that that was that probably would be what would go through a woman's mind and also you've got to think yourself back to that period I mean um, it was quite a sexual liberation in the war there were there was a lot of sex there were, you know people they were away from home they were young there were pressure the risk uh, you know definitely uh, you're not sort of being cheating on history or sensationalizing it if you suggest the woman might quite casually have had an affair in the war in a way that she wouldn't in the 30s and might very well not in the 50s either but in that particular time i think i think it was uh, a real throwing off of uh, shackles for women yeah should we hear a bit mm. sure um well i link the the novel is, is alternate chapters, one, one from the point of view of my German rocket engineer. Uh, of course, I had to invent his character after I'd come across this woman character, and then we go to her, and they are linked by the rocket, really, uh, which is, in a way, almost a kind of third character in the novel. So this is just early on in the book, um, which gives you a sort of maybe a, a sense of how the, the book is structured and the rocket links the two. So my German has just fired this rocket from a rainy Dutch coast on a Saturday morning, the end of November 1944. Uh, he's Graf and Kay, my officer, is uh, with her married lover uh, in central London. A hundred miles to the east, the V2 had reached its maximum altitude of 58 miles the edge of the Earth's atmosphere, and was hurtling at a velocity of three and a half thousand miles an hour beneath a hemisphere of stars when gravity at last began to reclaim it. Its nose slowly tilted and it started to fall towards the North Sea. Despite the buffeting of crosswinds and air turbulence during re-entry, a pair of gyroscopes mounted on a platform immediately below the warhead detected any deviations in its course or trajectory and corrected them by sending electrical messages to the four radars in its tail fins. Just as Kay was fastening the second of her stockings, it crossed the English coast, three miles north of Southend-on-Sea, and as she pulled her dress over her head, 
it flashed above Basildon and Dagenham. At 11.12 a.m., four minutes and 51 seconds after launching, traveling at nearly three times the speed of sound, too fast to be seen by anyone on the ground, the rocket plunged onto Warwick Court. An object moving at supersonic speed compresses the atmosphere in the infinitesimal set fraction of a second before the tip of the nose cone touched the roof of the Victorian mansion block and before the four-ton projectile crashed through all five floors, K registered beyond thought and far beyond any capacity to articulate it, some change in the air pressure, some presentiment of threat. Then the two metal cones of the missile's fuse, protected by a silica cap, were smashed together by the force of the impact, completing an electrical circuit that detonated a ton of Amatol high explosive. The bedroom seemed to evaporate into darkness. She heard the noise of the explosion and the rending of steel and masonry as the fuselage and fragments of the nose cone descended floor by floor. A crash as parts of the plaster ceiling landed around her, and then an instant later, the sonic boom of the sound barrier being broken, followed by the rushing noise of the incoming rocket. Thank you so much. I'm glad you said before the reading about the rockets being almost a third character, because uh, if it was a film, I'd have given the rocket best supporting actor. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of there's <laughs> yes. a really crucial part of this. There's a part, a part I highlighted that I wanted to read to you, because one of the things I enjoyed about your book, Robert, is how you then made me go and check for, for more detail, right? So there's a section very early on, there's no spoilers in this, uh, there's a dinner before a launch. A couple of white-gloved orderlies serve the food on the hotel's monogrammed pre-war china, a watery cabbage soup, and the final obscure remains of an ancient boar that had been shot in the forest by the SS guards the previous week. There was bread but no potatoes. The bulk of Germany's potato crop that year had been requisitioned to be distilled into alcohol for use as rocket fuel. Like pampered children, the V2s took food from the adults' plates. And I looked that up, and the figure I saw online was 30 tonnes of potatoes. Does that sound about right? Uh, for, for, for each rocket? Yeah. Yeah, I would, yes, I would think that's about right. I, I think they took uh, about uh, four tonnes of liquid uh, uh, alcohol. So, yes, probably would be, but would be still down. So, yeah, there, there's a huge potato shortage all across Germany and in Holland, Belgium. The Germans took all the potatoes. And, and turn them into rocket fuel. And then, of course, the guys who actually fired the rockets, these, you know, the thousands of German troops who were stationed in the forests of the coast of Holland, uh, bored. they used to drain the rocket fuel out of the uh, wagons, the tankers. And if you, they, it was dyed purple to try and deter them from doing this, but they found if they could filter it through a carbon gas mask three times, it would, the taste would be go. And, and the purple colour, and it would be drinkable. So they were smashed out of their heads, a lot of these rocket troops, as they fired these things at London. I mean, it's so crazy. But that yeah. short paragraph also, for me, encapsulated some of the blind loyalty that still existed even towards the end of the Second World War. These guys are on ragged boar from a week ago, and they haven't worked out themselves that they've got no potatoes because it's all going into the rockets. They're still just excited about the rockets, aren't they? They were excited about the rockets. There were two types of guys who launched the rockets. Very little has ever been written about them, actually. I've only found one book uh, that had any interviews with them. So that was made it good for me as a novelist. I felt I was writing about something that for all the books and films about the Second World War hasn't really been done. So the, most of the guys who were firing these rockets, they were either um, old veterans from the Eastern Front, 
for whom being in Holland in the winter of 1944 was a holiday camp compared mm. to what they'd been through before, or they were rookies, new trainees, direct from uh, training school. Uh, so there were these, there was this, these two types of men there, and then there was the occasional engineer sent from the rocket development center in Peenemunder on the Baltic, and that is the, the main character I have, who again, as we were selling, telling earlier, talking earlier, fulfills that role of being the insider outsider. You know, he's both he's designed the rocket, he has a whole history with the rocket. He's not really in the army. He's not really sympathetic to what's happening to it. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's a very nuanced line you obviously have to tread when you're writing these stories. And, you know, it's not the first time you've written about the Second World War. Reimagine some of the things that could have happened there. But presumably you're, you're conscious that you, you don't paint it in such a, an easy picture that, you know, your, your rocket scientist, Graf, it's not, we don't hate him from the off but he is the one who's created these rockets for Nazi Germany. And so I think as the reader, you're sort of a bit challenged because you're like, I should absolutely despise you. And you're trying to show some of the humanity there, but I, I don't think to such an extent that you're trying to ch change people's perceptions of what was right and wrong necessarily during the war. No, I, exactly. It's a delicate line to tread. I didn't want to write a kind of comic book, 1950s, 1960s, you know, uh, Fritz, the ardent Nazi versus the gallant British heroine. Mm. Um, and the rocket engineers, they, they, did, they did made a Faustian bargain, essentially, with the Third Reich. Um, they were started off as kids. I mean, Werner von Braun was the head of the programme and my fictional character, who's his close friend, Werner von Braun started off at 16, falling around with rockets on waste ground near Germany, and eventually was picked up by the German army. But they were interested in space travel. They wanted to go to the moon, and Werner von Braun uh, made that possible in the 60s. Uh, but, you know, the only way they could have the resources to build these rockets was with the armed forces. And the, uh, eventually the armed forces convinced Hitler that this thing could win the war, or Werner von Braun did. And then... Uh, it was mass produced and fired at civilians in Belgium and Britain. And 20,000 men died mass producing it, building the factory and then making the rockets. Uh, so, you know, what starts out as an innocent, indeed quite noble enterprise is gradually perverted and twisted. And most of those engineers were not Nazis. I mean, they were not members of the party. They probably mm. didn't even discuss politics very much. Uh, but they were at the service of this regime and their idealism was twisted and their genius was turned into a weapon. I wanted to ask you, because you've mentioned Werner von Braun there, and I'm, uh, you also told us about the obit earlier on that inspired Kay. And I was really curious about how you melded people that actually existed. So von Braun existed and did go on to, to join the Americans, didn't he? And, and led the space race for the Americans. But then uh, your two lead protagonists, albeit Kay's inspired, Graph is fictional. How, how did you decide where you wanted the fiction and where you wanted the truth? Well, there are only two um, speaking characters, as it were, in the novel who are real people. One is Werner von Braun, who is glimpsed again and again through the book. Um, you couldn't really write a, a novel about the V2 without having its inventor. Uh, uh, and uh, the second one is Kamler, the SS general, mm. who eventually became head of the rocket troops and was responsible for firing them. They're both real characters. 
Um, K um, is um, a made-up figure. I, I mean, the job that she did is the Eileen Young husband job, but she's very different to Eileen Young husband. One thing I wanted to do was, you know, wanted to write about a woman who had a very, very crucial role, but was unrecognised. One of the most unrecognised groups were the photo interpretation officers, most of them women, at RAF Medmenham, now Danesfield House near Marlow, which is a hotel. Uh, grand one of these grand houses on the Thames. I've stayed there, Robert. Oh, really? Yeah. Yes, I'm thinking of going and maybe trying to get a free meal, actually. <laughs> I stayed there and then read it in the book, and I thought, hang on, is that the same Danesfield house? Now, I, I had no idea. I used yeah. to go quite a few weekends there, probably going back 10 years now. A beautiful country house, uh, beautiful building, great facilities, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I had no idea it played this really significant role in the Second World War. No, and these women were... Um, you know, they studied millions and millions of photographs and they were a bit like the Codebreakers of Bletchley Park, about whom I've also written in fiction, um, in that, uh, in particular with the B weapons, because they, it was the photo interpretation people who first spotted, um, you know, the, the, the German facilities were pho photographed from seven or eight mile, miles high. Uh, and uh, they spotted these curious earthworks like amphitheaters on this remote Baltic island and for, for months they didn't know what on earth this was. Then they began to hear reports that the Germans might have a rocket and then uh, one woman in particular went back to look at those amphitheater earthworks and they realized they were rocket tests, could be rocket test facilities and then they commissioned more RAF flights over this site and then there was an electrifying moment in the summer of 1943 where they saw what looked like a column of 40 feet high standing on the shore of the Baltic. And they realized that was the rocket. And then actually Churchill himself drove over from Chequers to uh, Danesfield House to look at these photographs. And uh, a few months after that, the RAF tried to bomb the place flat. I mean, they sent 600 bombers, 4,200 aircrew in one bombing raid to try and obliterate it, which they failed to do. Uh, but Kay, the character you see there is absolutely central. It's her intelligence, her spotting this. I mean, I've given her some of the work that other women did, but you know, it's a tribute to that. You know, what she does leads to the bombing of the site. So I can get this kind of, the, my, my aim in the novel was to have a character do something and then that impacts on the other character who then does something and that impacts it. So it becomes like a tennis match with missiles in a way. Uh, and this way, it meant that he was working, building the missiles at the time that the RAF bombed Pinamondo because Kay has spotted these things, you know, suspicious objects. So just as a long way, way around of answering your, um, your question, the characters are, drawn from reality as much as I can, the jobs that they do. But then, of course, I invent the people themselves, mm. apart from the big named figures. And what about the, uh, quite early on, you detail, you name a number of the dead in one of these rocket attacks in, in Ilford in Greater London. Are they all real casualties? Yes. One thing I wanted to do, which I'm conscious of, is not to glamorise uh, the war and uh, not and just to, to drag it back to reality. There are still people. I mean, the, the rocket started with falling on London 76 years ago, as we speak. 
And uh, so there are people still alive in their 80s who will, or 90s, who will remember this, who lost relatives. And I felt that I should give some honour to them. So there are all the rocket strikes that are listed in the novel that hit London, that lead, panic the British into this response of sending the women to Belgium. All of them are real. They are the actual missiles. And we have the casualty list. The one particularly terrible one was a, a V2 that struck the Woolworth store in New Cross Road uh, in South London. And that killed 160, almost all of the women and children because it was lunchtime on a Saturday. And the Woolworths had had a consignment of saucepans delivered, which were quite rare in the war, and word had got around. So women came with their children. And do you remember in Woolworths there were the sweet counters? Yeah, yeah. Mm. So it's a terrible image of the women getting the household utensils, the women or children all crowded around the sweet thing. And my engineer has repaired a missile which lands on lands on this place. So yeah, I felt that I should name real people and and, and bring it home in that sense. I think you absolutely do justice to the the tone, as you were saying, because it doesn't it doesn't read in a sensationalist way at all. It's but by presenting those facts, obviously, it elicits a very emotional response. I found uh, as the reader, and um, I was saying to Phil the other day actually that reading your book now at this time in twenty twenty, I couldn't help but you, you know, as as a reader, you kind of make comparisons to what's going on around you at the time and you know, living through a pandemic. And I think when I was reading it, it was quite a, a testy time in particular where there was quite a lot of, you know, people not wearing masks, for example, or kind of questioning some of the science around coronavirus. And it was a really stark contrast for me personally to, to be reading your book and, and just have it laid out that, you know, people think that they're having a difficult time sometimes in, in the the small things that are required to try and help uh, the general population and you, and you sort of read something about the Second World War where people were literally starving you know as you said women and children being bombed while they were out shopping and I think it just makes you question sometimes the the narrative of how things are told in the present as well were you aware writing this in lockdown of that parallel? Uh, yes I was I don't not in any particular conscious way but um, I mean what's happened to us all really is our lives have been turned upside down mm. and that hasn't happened I mean that hasn't happened since 19 the 1940s there's never been um, something like that hasn't occurred and it's a reminder that forces are beyond us and beyond our routine of our lives to which we're accustomed something can come along um, happened in 1914 happened in 1939 uh, and it's happened in 2020. Uh, of course, there are huge differences. Um, uh, you know, bombs aren't falling from the sky. Young men aren't being sent off for years abroad. Um, um, but at the same time, um, it's 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 a reminder that you know life isn't normal or fair, and forces come and descend upon you. Uh, and you know, there, you, there were always wartime parallels, you know, the clapping for the NHS, the sense of all in it together, uh, of, a, of a common enemy. And that has frayed, I think, now, rather, mm. perhaps inevitably. The huge difference, of course, is that uh, having written my about the war, uh, it was young people who did the dying, by and large. And in this war, it's totally reversed. Um, uh, oddly enough, though, it seems to be the young people who have to 
bear the brunt yet again in a way. I mean, having had four children, you know, the excitement of finishing sixth form uh, and starting university, which we, we remember. That's gone for these people this year and prob probably next year as well. And they have to not do all those things that, you know, you're only 18, 19, 21, and you're, they're losing it all. So in a funny sort of way, yet again, the burden falls upon the young to protect the old. Yeah, no, it's, it's true. It's true. Um, well, yeah, that, that kind of contrast was, was made apparent to me while I was reading it, um, for sure. So, yeah. yeah. And I agree with you, the total patheticness of people complaining about wearing a mask, wearing a mask, for God's sake. Mm. I mean, and in the Second World War, if you'd said in the blackout, well, I don't really want to. It's a French on my liberty to uh, put blackout curtains <laughs> up, I'm afraid. Yeah. Have, they'd have hauled you out. Quickish, I can tell you. I mean, it's such a pathetic, wimpish thing to complain about. Robert, has the um, uh, the virus impacted on on you in any way, shape, or form? In as much as have you had to shield? Have you been careful about your movements? Or, and how has it impacted what you would have done promo-wise for the book? Um, yeah, it's had an impact. As we were discussing earlier, it had an impact on my. You know, a lot of people say, "Oh, lockdown." That's what a novelist is always in lockdown. It's fine for you, and in many ways, of course, it is fine. I mean, I just sit here in this room and I write and I pursue my living. It's quite. It is a lot harder though because you don't have your your subconscious doesn't get so much of a rest. So that made it hard to work. Uh, the business of bringing out a book has been very strange. You know, normally I'd be touring around literary festivals and bookshops. I can't do that. Um, but I'm not going to complain about it. I'm lucky. I live in the country. I've got space. My children didn't need to be educated at home. My parents sadly have died, but at least I wasn't having to worry about them. Uh, so, you know, in a sense, I've had it easy. Um, my daughter had coronavirus quite early on, but she's, 19, she's 29, so she was able to get over it all right. Um, you know, it's been tough for all of us, hasn't it, I think? Mm. Um, and as my heart goes out particularly, actually, to uh, young professional people with uh, children at home and elderly parents they've got to worry about as well. There's that period in middle age where there's just all the pressure mm. is on you. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, that's my life right now. You've just described. We've got two yeah, from the age of four. And <laughs> same for well, Natalie. you know, I've, I've been I'm sorry. I'm sorry, guys. I, I I can imagine what it's like. Yeah, and let me ask you: Is it the journalist in you that makes you set all of your stories in times of reality? Do, is that a particular inspiration for you? Because everything, whether it's conclave or whether it's this, they're all set with a backdrop of things that could have or did happen. Yes, I'm not. Uh, I mean, my idea of hell is uh, magic realism, or even to a degree, and this may offend some of your listeners, <laughs> uh, fantasy, which I, I, there's so much in the real world, which is extraordinary. That I, I think partly what I want to do is just bring out how extraordinary reality is. And uh, so a lot of my books, you know, you people read them and they think, my God, you know, how much of this is true and how much is made up? And I can tell you, it's always the things which seem the most extraordinary that are true mm -hmm. and all the things that are boring around them are the things that I've made up. Uh, so that's, you know, yeah, I like to go to great events or interesting periods and uh, just try and use the techniques of fiction to open them up. Uh, Officer and the Spy, a novel I wrote about the Dreyfus Affair, James Affairs strikes most people as dry as dust, and it did me, really, before I started to write about it. But it's an amazing story of cover-up and whistleblowing and corruption and 
um, anti-Semitism and state manipulation. And, you know, if, if by using the techniques of a novelist and going into it through a character who you become interested in, in his head, you can prize the whole thing open. I tried to do the same with Munich or with Conclave, with a, with a, which is told from the point of view of the dean of the College of Cardinals, bizarrely. Uh, yeah. That for me is what fiction can do. I mean, other writers do vastly different things, but my own particular interest in it is that. I've always been interested in politics and history, and you can use fiction to, uh, to open it up. Now, what is the state of play in terms of any adaptations on the horizon for V2? Because obviously a lot of your books have been adapted for film or television and, you know, have been incredibly successful with, you know, working with actors like Kate Winslet or Daniel Craig. Is, is V2 going to be adapted as well? I don't know, to be honest. Um, it's went out yesterday, curiously enough, to mm. film producers and so on. I mean, these are these are difficult times, so, um, you know, I'll wait and see what happens. I mean, it often takes a long time for um, for things to get to the screen in any case. Um, uh, but there are a couple of films possibly being made of my books. Um, and, you know, such is the voracious appetite of television and movies these days. I think that everything will be made <laughs> eventually. Everybody's books will be turned into something. Um, so, yeah, but uh, it'd be fascinating to see because you could do it as a feature film, mm. which is the way, in the sense, the novel is of a tight time frame. But you could open it up, actually, because the book actually spans two or three years at least. Um, so you could do it as a series instead. But, you know, I don't take... I mean, I'm always interested in it, but I don't take much notice of it. I certainly don't write a book with it in mind, you know. I mean, it's it's sufficient to just try and write the novel. And that's what I like doing, because if you're a novelist, I've written screenplays, but I much prefer novels because you are the director and the producer, the screenwriter, the actors, you know, it's completely yours. Whereas the films are just taken away from you. Do you enjoy that process or is it just a kind of a strange one to see how somebody interprets your your work how involved are you always in the process or is it just different for everyone they vary two screenplays i've done myself uh that have been made uh, the uh it's a bit like having grandchildren i'd imagine which i don't have but um you they come along they're very pleasant you can play around with them and they'll be proud of them and then hand them back and uh, not take too much responsibility I, that's how i sort of feel about them <laughs> really a very sensible way to be. Um, can I also just ask, I wanted to take you back to sort of where we started really, where you were talking about writing this in lockdown and, and your process for writing. Um, because I think most of the authors we've spoken to tend to write much more in isolation than I, it sounds like you did, as in they will either not tell their agent or publisher what they're working on or only be prepared to show them it once they've completed a, a first draft and then they hand it over. Whereas you seem to do this, you know, write a few chapters or, you know, what you're saying, 4,000, 5,000 words and send that off, get feedback straight away. And that's, that sounds like something that I think I'd quite like it, that that kind of gives you then the, the courage and the confidence to keep going and, and know that you're heading down the right track. Is that always how you work? Um, yeah, the, my first novel, I kind of wrote the first third, Fatherland, I wrote the first third of it and then handed that over. Um, that was quite lonely and that was, a you know, Took me a long time to write the opening of the find how to write that book uh, thereafter 
uh, by and large, I've been lucky to have very good editors, uh, all female, I might say, uh, in the UK, which is the main editor, even though you have editors in America and elsewhere. And uh, um, they become friends, you know, and I would meet them for lunch and we'd talk about it. And um, uh, I found that very good. You know, um, when Roger Bannister did the four minute mile, you know, he was a crisp race. He had someone or, or two of them running alongside him going, you can do it. <laughs> uh, I found a good editor has that role, you know, sort of encouraging and, you know, uh, so that's the way I tend to work, but, um, you know, oddly enough, my agent, my editor's just left, so uh, the process may be different from now on. Um, I don't believe in uh, isolation uh, for a writer. I think it's important to be, to hear the sounds of the house in the background and to uh, see your family or friends. And I, I don't believe in the log cabin in the woods where you lock yourself away for months. I think you'd just go mad. And I don't think you produce a very good book, quite frankly. I think that you need human interaction. Mm. There's a wonderful phrase of Stephen King's for the subconscious, which he calls the boys in the basement. Mm -hmm. And he's very right. A lot of the work is done by the boys in the basement. And you wake up in the morning. And another thing with King that I find I share is uh, that the most creative moment is when you just start to wake up in the morning, when ideas come into your head. A lot of my books have been written lying awake at about 5 5.30 in the morning, thinking somehow this, the brain seems malleable. I don't know. That's the point that a lot of things are suddenly solved. And they've been solved by what you haven't been seeing at a desk at all. So, do you know, Robert, a psychotherapist told me once that that's why we dream and that the dreams you have are the brain resetting and organizing the filing cabinets. So that yeah. does not surprise me at all to hear you say that, you know, your kind of earliest waking moment, it's almost as if the brain's done the ideas work for you and thrown them to the front of your brain. And you, luckily you wake up and can write them down because sometimes, personally speaking, I've had some great ideas at three in the morning and I think, oh, well, that will keep till the morning and it's gone. I, yeah, down, I can never remember dreams. They vanish immediately. But I'm very conscious that the problems have been sorted out overnight without me having to do anything. Mm. And I think one of the problems with the pandemic and the lockdown was that our dreams, a lot of us had weird dreams, vivid dreams. And I don't think the subconscious was functioning in the calm way that it normally did. I think it was processing all this other kind of crazy stuff. Mm. And my novel was getting pushed to the side. So I'd sit down and the boys had been absent during, in the basement during the night. They'd been doing something else. Uh, but then finally they, they came back, thank God. <laughs> yeah, after some overtime. Can you tell us, um, is there something piquing your interest at the moment for the next book? What stage are you at? Well, I normally have a couple of ideas, you know, finish a novel. I quite like to get straight on to another because I like, you know, I don't have any hobbies. Tinkering around, thinking about novels or writing them is what I do. And uh, so I have a couple of ideas. At this stage, if you, I, I wouldn't tend to mention what they are because mm -hmm. if you inject a note of scepticism however friendly you were if you said really hasn't that been done or uh, <laughs> you know uh, the whole thing will die in my in my hands it's very very fragile at this stage and it's only after about three or four months you know that you can say well I think if I could have these two characters and this happens you know you see it like one of those Crick and Watson designs of DNA do you know what I mean there's sort of uh sticks and blobs that oh yeah yeah uh you see three, few three or four sticks and two or 
three blobs and you start to <laughs> go out from there and then it begins to then it's strong enough to say what the idea is so but I we're now, if you don't mind no no and i completely get that but just in terms of process we're talking to you middle of october 2020 and from what you said earlier yeah. you'll have to start writing in january 21 so are you confident that you know what you'll be writing in January or do you have a deadline separate to that? Would you say, right, well, I'll, I'll percolate till December. How do you work? I think I may skip publishing a novel next year. I've done two in successive years and I, I, if it was ready to go in January, if it is, then I will do it. But I suspect it's possible that it won't quite be ready and that I'll, um, you know, it'll take longer to research. And at the same time, I might research another as well. But I, I do like the January to June mm. process uh, rather than starting in sort of May. All I tend, the writing just becomes less urgent. Uh, I throw away a lot more. You know, when you're writing on, on a time, if you're saying I'm going to write a novel in six months, you're, you know, you're going to try and keep what you write relevant. You know, it keeps you on a track. You, don't, you can't afford to go wandering off and waste you know three or four weeks doing something that isn't going to work and I think uh, I may be wrong but I think the novels benefit from that V2 in particular actually which just goes I hope like the trajectory of a rocket there's mm. no you know it that's it uh, mm. and um, sometimes people say well I, I liked it but I wish it had been longer well yeah. I take that as a compliment actually because mm. it's better to feel like that that leaves you thinking leaves you you know that a lot of writing is is leaving the gap for the reader to fill in. You know that they they if you explain every damn thing, then the book doesn't work, in my view. I like spare writers, tight writers like Green, you know, Simenon, uh, those sorts of uh, writers who would think a book of longer than seventy thousand words was crazy. You know. Yeah, just before we get your uh, recommendations of what you, other things you enjoy reading. So does it sound like, you know, that kind of precarious nature we were talking about, how easy it is to distract yourself from writing and the, the pressure of deadlines if it gets to January and you haven't started writing your book? Are you like, well, that's it then. I'm, I'm done. <laughs> but this year, there's no way I can kind of restart it in May or whatever, because I've missed that crucial deadline. It is a bit like that because uh, the publishers want my books to come out in the autumn, uh, which is, I know a lot of people complain about oh, books, too many books come out in the autumn. And I kind of agree with that. But the truth of the economics of the business is that's when people go out and buy books, especially mm. in the run up to Christmas. So, uh, you know, I have to deliver a book by, let's say, July, the very latest. And if I can't do that, then they would probably say, well, if I delivered it in, October, they'd only sit on it then for 10 months or something, 11 months and bring it out the following year. So, I, and I quite like the journalistic business of being in a kind of dialogue almost with the readers. You know, they're written urgently, they're put through the printers and so on, and they're on the shelves. And so there's a sense of, you know, you're in communication with your readers, which I, I like that very much. So if I can get, to, if I feel, if I was to feel, and I've God knows we haven't got much else to do, have we? If I feel <laughs> <laughs> over the next two or three months I'm ready to, I've got it all ready to go, then I will go, definitely. Uh, but, you know, as I say, with all the stresses and strains of this year and having done two in successive years, it may be that next year is the year that I miss. And then, but I might then be ready to do two in two years, mm -hmm. so, as it were, 2022 and 2023. If the good Lord spares us if there's any readers, <laughs> if we're all still here. <laughs>
Robert, give us some recommendations for other books, please. Something that um, has piqued your interest can be anything. Well, I'll be honest with you. Working as a writer um, and writing as a novelist, I read a lot fewer novels than I used to do. And almost the last thing I want to do to relax is to sit down and put my feet up and read someone else's novel. Uh, it sounds bizarre, <laughs> but I, I can't help but think, oh, that's how they did that. Uh, and either be irritated or <laughs> so jealous, so impressed and envious with it, uh, that I've, a lot of my entertainment comes from films and uh, these wonderful series you now get that you can watch, binge watch. So yeah. that's been a lot of my entertainment, especially this year. Uh, books that I've read, particularly this year, have been things that have taken me out of this whole miserable epoch. Uh, Craig Brown's book on the Beatles, one, two, three, four, was a great book I found to just for, to remind one of a more optimistic time. I mean, I was a kid when the Beatles were starting, and it took me right back. And I, th I thought that was that was a great book that I that I read in lockdown. Otherwise, I uh, in novels, I as I mentioned my models of Graham Greene, and I can read things like The End of the Affair, which is almost, I think, probably the best novel set in the Second World War that I've read, even as a V1 in it, not a V2, but as a V1. I think that's so atmospheric. I think he's, a, he's brilliant in that way that he can conjure, he can play with reality and the metaphysical concepts of Catholicism and so on, uh, and the spareness of his prose. Uh, um, I don't know how much Green is in, fashion these days, but I, I would regularly go back and read Graham Greene. And Georges Simenon, I mentioned, when I was uh, a teenager, those green-spined uh, penguins, crime, uh, the Maigret books, and not only the Maigret books, the other books that Simenon wrote, acute for, uh, psychological insight, insight stories, um, sense of place, summed up, evo evoked in, mo in two or three sentences. I think both of those writers are absolute masters and uh, they're so mercifully, Simulon in particular, they wrote a lot of books. And so there's a lot that one can enjoy and go back to again and again. I'm yeah. definitely willing to bend the rules on the podcast, Natalie, for Robert Harris, aren't you? I think, Robert, if anyone, if we bend the rules for anyone, we bend them for Robert. So as you said that you've been going to your box sets and you've been binging shows, do you want to, you can give us a couple of recommendations of things to watch. No one's ever done this on bestsellers. <laughs> you know, it's a cliche to say, but I think a really, really good uh, box set has replaced the kind of Victorian novel as the thing that, you know, you read, you, you get, helps you get through the winter. Uh, I strongly recommend a French series, which you can get, I uh, think, Amazon, uh, called The Bureau, which is a French Le Carré. And there are five seasons, series of it, so you've got plenty to go at. Uh, and it's brilliantly acted, and it's just their MI6, really. It's, it's, uh, and it's, somehow it's much more, it's, it's very believable. You can believe all these people are so good-looking, you know, and you can believe that the politics is so crooked. Uh, so that that is a, a very strong recommended recommendation. I should think most people have heard of Succession now, by now, but that is uh, again uh, absolutely fantastic. It's a blind. We've been going back and doing crazy things like looking at old seventies TV series. Uh, we've actually really been enjoying The Brothers. I don't know whether you can even possibly remember it or even heard of it, but that went no. out of the seventies. Yeah. yeah, and it, uh, there's a lot of good stuff you know, that's nice to revisit. The Brothers is like a time capsule back into the 1970s. And there were seven series of that. So, you know, 
you know, that will get us through to the uh, third wave, probably. <laughs> and just before we wrap up, um, I wanted to ask about, you were saying how there's quite, it sounds like a healthy profess professional rivalry between other authors, uh, but your wife's a writer and your brother-in-law is Nick Hornby, unless I'm wrong. Yep. So how do you manage that relationship? We all hate one another. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, it's great. We all write completely different things. Um, my wife writes about Jane Austen. I write about ballistic missiles. Nick writes about music and football. Weirdo. Uh, so, uh, it, no, it, it's great. We're all uh, quite similar in background and in education and an outlook. And uh, we want the same sort of things from a book. Uh, uh, have a horror of pretension. Um, and just enjoy it. So, yeah, no, it's been great that the three of us have sort of gone along. Uh, doing this. Would you ever flow ideas amongst that trio? So including Nick as well. I know you said you share things with your wife. No, I mean, he wouldn't. <laughs> he finds it hysterical that I spend so much time thinking about the Second World War, the Romans. I'm utterly bewildered by his attachment to Arsenal and uh, whatever uh, particular band he's interested in that moment. No, it's great because we have literally no interest <laughs> in the subjects the other writes about, and yet we each enjoy one another's books. I'm just um, finishing Nick's latest book now. Um, and he enjoyed V2, at least he said he did. Uh, so, you know, that's, it's good. It's one of those relationships where, you know, you probably wouldn't have known one another if it hadn't been for the accident of marriage. Yeah, it is. Oh, well, uh, thank you so much, Robert. It's been such a pleasure hanging out with you um, today and getting to hear all your thoughts on writing and, and everything else. So thank you. Yeah, we've really enjoyed it, Robert. Thank you. I really love talking to you both. Stay safe, as they say. Yeah, yeah you, too. you too. You too. And look forward to, to reading and seeing what comes next. Well, that was hugely satisfying for me. Having um, never met him, never interviewed him before, I really, really enjoyed that hour in his company. And also I felt that he was very generous and... Uh, very relaxed, actually. Do you know what I mean? Nothing was off limits, was it? And there was no, um, there was no delicacy at all. He literally just told it as it was. Very honest about lockdown and writing. And I really admired his um, his discipline. That January to June thing. You think uh, you could do that? I think I could, but I think I would need other people to help me. I think there's, you know, we were talking at the start. Um, I think part of my stubbornness, where it works against me, is I'm like, I should be able to do this by myself, and I should be able to kind of set deadlines mm. and, and stick to it. Um, but I think he's absolutely right. I think, you know, often you do have to enlist other people who can help push that along. Um, I also thought he he was really funny, and uh, I think there is a lot of humour in his writing as well, which we didn't really get to to talk about. Um, he mentioned it a little bit, but. Um, yeah, that absolutely came came across. And, you know, just before we started recording, uh, so Robert was talking to us from his home in the countryside and he was in this magnificent room that he writes in that had floor to ceiling bookshelves that were crammed with books. And, and we were sort of like, oh, wow, like that's an impressive room. And he's like, oh, it's a virtual backdrop. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think, yeah, I think he's just very, he's very witty. And I'd, I'd actually kind of quite like to to read more of his comedic prose, I think, because he does that really well. Yeah, yeah, it really does, yeah. I loved Kay in this book. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted she's a really to, great character. I wanted to meet Kay. In a former life, before I was married, I might have wanted to go out with Kay. Do you know oh, what I mean? Really? 
yeah. I do. And I was absolutely sincere. And I, and I hope uh, it doesn't come across as arrogant in saying that, you know, that character of Kay in the book, often the, and it is men because of the times that she's interacting with who are in positions of power, you know that she is way more capable mm. than they are and could mm. do a, a much better job than the hash that they're making of it. Um, so yes, yeah, so it's kind of really, I really enjoyed talking to him about that as well. And I loved um, asking him about, you know, familial ties at the end there as well. And, you know, it's quite, I don't know if it's unusual or not to have so many prolific and well-respected writers in, in such a close-knit way like that. But um, yeah, he, he seems to, to handle that really well too. So um, we are going to take a little break, mostly because I'm knackered. Um, so that's mostly the reason. And it might sound odd. You might go, well, hang on, the 600 books out. Why are you breaking now? But we were only going to do 10 episodes. And I think we're already at 21, aren't we? Or 22 yeah. or something. So you've already had your money's worth out of us, considering that you're not paying. So we're going to have a little <laughs> pause. But we will be back. We're just not we sure when, but we will sure. be back. For sure. There are so many books that I want to read and talk to the authors about. And um, yeah, you just need to get better at managing your time, Phil. <laughs> I just need to get more stubborn. I just need to get some of your stubbornness, I think. And then we'll be away. Can you imagine if we we're both this stubborn? Oh, don't. Um, yeah, I can actually. Yeah. I think you are quite stubborn too. You think so? Yeah, yeah. We, we never clash though, do we? Not particularly, no. <laughs> Give it time. <laughs> I wondered why you were pausing. I was thinking, what's she thinking about? <laughs> what is her brain going back to in a hard drive that I can't recall? <laughs> um, no, yeah, but what, are you reading anything else good at the moment that you, that you want to recommend at this point then? Well, first of all, I've got the new Mike Connolly to start, The Law of Innocence. And I'm so excited about it because I know you know that I'm a fan of his because we did him earlier on in the run. But this is a Mickey Haller book. So it's The yeah. Lincoln Lawyer. Lincoln and that's Lawyer. my favourite character. More than Bosch, I love The Lincoln Lawyer. So I was so infused. And the interesting thing about this, and hopefully I'll speak to him on Times Radio about it, is that two years ago when I interviewed him at the B, um, I told him that. I said to him that Haller was my favourite character. And he went, oh, interesting. And he just jotted something on a... And I said, what are you writing down? He said, oh, just a note about Mickey Haller. And I don't, I, you know, listen, I don't know. I'm not going to be as arrogant as to claim that I inspired <laughs> that book. But he, as, as he discussed with us, he's got this universe, hasn't he, of characters. So I think it was definitely Haller's turn. So, yeah, that's by the sign of the bear. Uh, by the time this is up and about, I would have interviewed Skin from Skunk and Nancy. And her life story is really, really interesting. You'd love that book, by the way. Yeah. Mm, um, such an impressive woman, Skin. So, uh, yep, there's that book. That's, uh, oh, and then um, for fun, because we've got no chance of getting him for the pod or the radio show because he's not doing anything, apparently. We've asked. But uh, Jerry Seinfeld, is this anything? Is the book. Uh, and the reason he's called it that is because he says that when stand-ups are working out new material in clubs, they'll often say to other stand-ups, is this anything? And they'll do the bit to the other stand-up. Yeah. So what he's done is a compendium of his bits. Nice. And it's just so good. Even though you're not seeing him and you're not hearing his voice, you do end up reading it in Jerry's voice because you mm -hmm. kind of... And what he's done is he's spaced the bits out on the page. So you're not reading paragraphs of text. You're reading two lines, gap, two lines, gap, punchline. Two lines, gap, two lines, gap, punchline. And you kind of get a greater sense of the structure of Jerry yeah. Seinfeld's comedy. Yeah. But they're just, just really well observed, really well observed. Like there was a last... And what I like about it as well, I keep it by the side of the bed. I do my work reading. And then I do say two pages of Jerry before bed because you end on a laugh, right? And that's the way I like to end my days. And there was a part last night where he says, um, do you remember when you were a kid and you watched Superman on the telly and it was the greatest show ever? And I thought, yeah, I do remember that. And then he says, you ever watched it back now as an adult? He says, the fact that he thinks he can fool people 
into believing he's not Superman just by putting glasses on when he's Clark Kent. He hasn't even got lenses in the glasses. He puts his finger straight through the hole to scratch his eye. And I, I remember him doing that. And then he said, we all bought into the concept that Superman had his costume on underneath his shirt and tie. That's fine. Yeah. Where were the boots? Where were the red boots? And I thought, yeah. oh, yeah. So it's just that's really it's a funny and makes you go, oh, yeah, it's brilliant. Really well observed. So that is this anything by Jerry Seinfeld is lovely. It's a nice book to, um, I'd almost, it would be disrespectful to call it a bog book, but it is that kind of book where you just go, oh, I need two pages to cheer me up and then you can put it down and do something else. That's lovely. And what else Great. Is over there? Cool. Um, um, I did for the yeah. show. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and I, I want to mention it just because um, we didn't do it here on bestsellers, but it's a really good book. It's The Abstainer by Ian Maguire. So Ian Maguire's 2016 book was uh, Booker nominated. But this one came out this year, came out September, I think. But it's a really, really good set in Manchester, um, all about some um, IRA members who are hung and the trouble that leads from that hanging. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, it's brilliant. It's, it's, again, one of those, similar to Robert Harris, where uh, the, the start of the book is true. That You can look that up. That actually happened in 18-something or other. And then there's a fiction that comes from that. But it's really, really brilliantly done. I really enjoyed that. Probably one of my books of the year. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's good. Um, uh, so I have recently finished reading Graham Norton's third novel, Homestretch, which is a gorgeous tale, actually. Um, and I don't mean to sound surprised saying that, but I think he 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 writes in quite a different way, perhaps that you might expect from the TV personality that you know. Um, it's a very sensitive book. It's uh, he captures family dynamics incredibly well and um just the kind of judgments that people put on each other and themselves um yeah it's, it's really worth your time that one i'm reading jodie picolt's new one as well which is quite intense but i i really like her writing she kind of i think i find it intense because she describes quite a lot of fears of mine so this book is um uh, it's got quite a lot of about death in it so, you know, it's that kind of thing where you sort of, you sometimes get attracted to things that you know are challenging in your own life or in anybody's life, really. Um, but I, she just has such a, she kind of really cuts to the chase and you, you'll sort of read a few paragraphs and then there'll be kind of like a killer line that will just really get you. Mm. Um, so I'm enjoying that. I'm also actually, I'm reading quite a lot on the go. I'm, I'm reading Nina Stibbe's book. Stibbe, is that how you say it? I always thought it was Nina Stibbe, but then I think I heard somebody say Stibbe. I thought it was Stib, if I'm honest. Yeah, I thought it was Stib. I, but yeah, anyway. Um, Let's call the whole thing. Because <laughs> uh, her writing is brilliant. So um, I'm reading her latest book as well, which is really funny. It's kind of set in and around a dental surgery. Um, and then there's, there's others I want to read. I really want to read um, Alice Hoffman's got a new book out, which I know you'll probably never read because it's magical realism. But I really like her writing. And also uh, there's a book. It's one of the Booker Prize shortlist actually uh real life by brandon taylor that's been on my list for a while that i really want to read too so yeah there's again there's just so many books um so although we'll be resting the pod we won't be resting our eyes that's for sure and we'll hopefully come back with some of these authors and some of these books soon mm-hmm.